0: All right, here we go. Um, I, you know, last week, <clears throat> not many people had uh, kind of remembered where we were, and that was fine because we were off for four or five weeks. And then we said, if you can, read 133 to 147. So you can start, or I can start, or we can do whatever you want. What would you like to do? Chat some more? Have some fun? By the way, uh, we're 9-2, so everyone knows. We did, which was, you know, bittersweet. We all said a rosary together at the end and went home. I'm kidding. That's going to go on the recording. Um, What page are you on? forty five. Okay.
1: hmm And yeah, how it says that in fact it's a disaster, in the betrayal of Jesus. He just has the most terrific way of putting things that I haven't
0: right. thought about. But um it probably gets back. It's a little like the original SIM discussion we're having. I mean it it's easy right. to mute that. I yes. Think, you know? Well, I especially I underlined on page 145 there, um, second full paragraph, because all this is true enough is a paragraph. But the moment this becomes our basic orientation for dealing with what is wrong in the world, we have turned our backs on the cross of Christ, on Jesus as the Savior. And then this is what I underline: The moment the moral life defines our way of life, we turn our backs on most of what is revealed in the scriptures, refuse to admit the presence of God and what is happening around us, history, but worst of all, refuse to deal with the most significant thing we know about Jesus, having replaced the real Jesus with a crude one-dimensional cardboard cutout. Do you see what he said there? He's not, by no means does he say the moral life is bad, but what he said is when the moral life has the first word, then more, then it becomes moralism. This is, this is uh, you know, the great tragedy of Lutheranism in the 18th century. We fell into what's called pietism. Piety is not bad, but to be a pietist or to fall into pietism, that's when it becomes bad. So here you, it's not bad to be moral, but to fall into moralism is bad. That's when moralism, that's when morals get the first word. You know, we said this last night with, um, we had a little meeting here with the designer and stuff, and it's very important. I've begun to notice over everything we do, from walking into the morning and turning the coffee pot on, which I always find a bit strange, that I'm the one that turns the coffee pot on some mornings, and then, this is what really irks me. We have, Tammy did a great job of buying new coffee, so there's Starbucks down there. I shouldn't have told you that, because now you're all going to fill up here. But there's Starbucks down there, And every morning, someone turns it on, I turn it on, Augie turns it on, whatever, and the pot is empty when I go back to fill it up, and no one's refilled it. (laughs) Well, no, I mean, my thought is, okay, now I filled it in the morning, I got one cup, and someone has left it dry, so I have to fill it again. Just know what you're paying me for, filling coffee. Yes, Yeah, but to teach mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there is something, uh, I mean, there's, there's something inherently good about teaching morals. It's very important. But it is detached when you don't have the person of Christ. And I think it's very important to say the person of Christ. We're not just talking about any Jesus. We're talking about the person of Jesus Christ who took on flesh in the Incarnation. That's why this chapter begins by talking about the Incarnation. The incarnation is everything. So if it's detached from the person of Christ, then it becomes moralism. Uh, and the great, and that doesn't mean that all kids that go to public schools are moralists. That's not what that means, because there are many kids in our school who would do well to be moralists. <laughs> you know what I mean? That would be a good first step. <laughs> <laughs> um, the great advantage to being here is, and this is, this is my original point before I got off my tangent about the coffee, is that everything from walking in the front door, I mean, your whole life needs to be defined first and foremost by the person of Christ. Everything from going to bed at night, to sleeping through the night, to waking up in the morning, to getting dressed, to going to work, everything. Um, And that, for some, takes a a tremendous reorientation of your lives. And one thing, we've talked about Lent, because Lent is three weeks away this year. What we're going to do for midweeks, I think the pastors are going to take back the midweek Lenten evening services and preach those, uh, just because it's fun to preach and gives us more shots and whatever. So we've talked about themes and stuff, and I think where we're going to go is this whole idea of being reoriented towards the light, which is really uh, another way of saying being reoriented towards Christ, allowing Christ, or in this case, light, to have the first word. And when you let Christ have the first word, you can't go wrong. But, you know, for Lutherans, and those of you who are there on Tuesday nights, you know, you've heard this now for a couple weeks. For Lutherans, often it's not moralism that gets the first word. It's the scriptures that get the first word. And even that's not right. Then you're just a fundamentalist. But you have to let Christ speak first and then say, what does he have to say? Where does he live? What does he give? How does he transform my life? And if you receive all that passively as gift and then rejoice in this new life, then you can't fall into moralism. Yeah? Yeah? You see how inherently that's backwards? Go ahead. (laughs) Well, you pause. That's why I thought you were done. Okay, that's fine. That's me too. I just try to out talk people. Then no one else can get anything in. I'm kidding.
1: That's <laughs> a good way to live. Less murder, but right, You know, all this stuff. But that actually denies or removes Christ from the cross and goes back almost to the rich man that says, well, I've already done all this. Mm-hmm. this yeah. stuff. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. right. And so it's affirmation Yes. That's well said because I think you'll find that if you wake up in the morning, let's just take your example I need to be a good person. I have to obey the Ten Commandments. I have to do this. It would be best if I did this. I'm going to live like this. Imagine how burdensome your life becomes. Because you're never going to live up to what your expectations are. Some people set low expectations and it's easy to achieve what you want. If you set high expectations, it's hard to achieve that. And then it becomes, then it becomes you against the law, which is what your point is. I can't quite measure up, but I'm going to keep trying. But you see, not only are the verbs wrong, but the starting point is wrong. It started with you. If it begins with the person of Christ and you say, not this is what Jesus wants from me, because that, that too is a kind of moralism. When you start with, Jesus says I need to live like this, so I'm going to try my darndest to live like that, that's starting with moralism. To start with the person of Christ means you say, who is Jesus? What has he done? What gifts does he give? And finally, so then the fourth word said is, how does that transform my life? And when that motivates you, Jesus gives me his gifts at his altar, and frankly, I'm a different person when I leave the altar than when I went up. Or, you know, this is a live thing. Lane, thankfully, saved us in confirmation last week. Most times she's not awake, but she saved us. That. <laughs> I said, we were talking about the creed. We were talking about the three persons of the Trinity. Um, and I said, at the Holy Supper, do you get the entire Godhead or just the Son? And thankfully, Lane said, you get the entire Godhead. Because, as you know, Colossians 2.9 says, for in Christ, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. When you consume the Supper, you say, you actually are consuming Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So I visit the shut-in who says, right after the Supper, I don't feel like I have the Spirit, which is completely, completely wrong. There's no way you can leave the supper and say, I don't feel like I have the Spirit. You may not feel it, but you've got it. When you consume that then, this is why, I mean, it almost sounds like a a broken record because it's all about the Eucharist. It's all about the Incarnation. You can see how those two things really are one and the same. But when you consume that, you're not just consuming flesh and blood that forgives your sins. That's great, but it's not the full shot. You're actually consuming the body, the blood, the soul, and the divinity of Jesus. Who Jesus is, not just what he wears. And that transforms your life. Or as the proper preface for the Ascension says, this is just out of the liturgy, so I'm not making this up, he makes us partakers of his divine nature. Or he makes us partakers of his divine life. So what Jesus... This is why Peterson is so great. It starts with Jesus... It's his story, and then he wraps you up into his story, and that's what comprises history. It's all about Jesus. And he makes you partakers of that divine life, which then transforms the way you live. But it's him, it's, it is the person of Christ that's doing it. And then it can't be moralism. But you see the difference. There's, some people say, well, there's not a difference. There's a huge difference. One begins with Jesus and his gifts, and it, it demands nothing of you, but allows you to live a life as gift. And the other side says, here's what I have to do, and if I don't, I'm going to feel miserable about it. That's the way of the law. This is the way of the gospel. Okay? Yeah? I think of the 10th commandment, just reading this, I know C.S. Lewis makes the same comments about how we mm-hmm. apparently
1: know right and wrong. somehow. Like, And it says here right and wrong are embedded in creation, yeah. which is fascinating to me that even, even
0: atheists... Mm-hmm. Right.
1: From, but, um, oh, I think of the Ten Commandments as almost just affirming what we already know to be true. Mm-hmm. Or, or the ba- that's Eden. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like that's right and wrong embedded in
0: creation. It's just expressed, in God expresses it. Right. The Ten Commandments, rather than, I don't know. Well. And the important thing is there, a couple, well, the most important thing, and and I was a little surprised he didn't go to the Ten Commandments. He didn't mention them, I think, offhandedly, but I don't think he specifically referenced them as kind of the shape of the Christian life. But, you know, they're called the Ten Words, which you've all heard. But what what you maybe haven't heard, this is a plug for Tuesday Night Bible Study, unless you come to Tuesday Night Bible Study, at least for the next two weeks. Um, What you have heard is that that word bears the thing itself. So it's not just a bunch of words that the Lord's talking about. Do this, do this, do this. When he speaks the ten words, it brings with it the person of Christ. Actually bears the person of Christ. And so when, when you read through the ten words, it's like Jesus looking in a mirror. That's just who Jesus is. And that that's yours because you are who Jesus is. This is, this is Peterson. His story becomes your story. And not just... Not in kind of an evangelical like, "Oh, I made Jesus mine, and isn't He great?" You're one flesh. Pastor Bruzic's story is your story. Abby's story is my story. What's well, the same with Jesus? His story is my story because we're one person. So, what are you saying like, uh, exactly? Like the commandments mm-hmm. that God helps you live those commandments. I mean, like, yeah. Like, be- Yes, because, yes, that's well said. That's a good question. Um, it's not, you could say it as God helps you to live them. It would be better to say that is who Jesus is and he rejoices in those. He actually, Jesus doesn't break any of the ten words. For him, they're pure gospel. But you break all of them? You break all of them. You do. This is, well, this is the great, this is the great Lutheran, you know, doctrine, uh, simultaneously sinner and saint. Right? I mean, you, you are a damn sinner, although your husband never says that. <laughs> you are, as am I, as of as everyone else. But when you're incorporated into the flesh of Jesus, this is, I mean, you have to talk physically about this. This is tangible stuff. It's not the body of Christ that's out there someplace. You're physically in his flesh. Through baptism. You've been baptized into Christ. So what goes for him goes for you. If they're gospel for Jesus, they also are gospel for you, as long as you joyfully run with Jesus. Now you can say I'd rather walk someplace else. Well, we're just naturally going to do something else. You are. And that's going to whether we yep. want to or not. I mean, yeah. yeah. And the question is, where does the Lord pull you back inside his flesh or or uh, or forgive you in such a way that you can rejoice fully in his flesh? That's why people that don't come to the supper don't don't have absolution. Uh you know, they're going to be running away from Jesus more than they're coming at Jesus. Because that's where Jesus pulls you back. That's where he says, hey, hey, come on. This, yeah, you, not, yeah, you can't do that. Or it's better if you just and do it. Do it. Yeah, do it. Yeah, yeah, right. Right. yeah, right. Yeah, or it's better if you just run with me. Right. So they're pure gospel for Jesus. And this is not a Lutheran thing. I'm telling you, if you, go to the sem- if you were to walk into the seminary today and say the ten words are gospel, they'd probably fail you. <laughs> but that's what Jesus says. So, we go with Jesus, not the seminary. Go ahead. So, on that same note, though, if we're running, if, if we're running away from the sufferer, mm-hmm. are we then to assume that Jesus is not running after us? Nope, not at all. Okay. Not at all. Um, because what he does, this is, the fa- I mean, this is like Pharaoh. Everyone thinks the Lord hardened his heart, because that's what it says. They think the Lord's kind of a mean guy, like, well, I'm going to get at you, Pharaoh. When, in actuality... The Lord never, ever, ever gives up on anyone. In fact, it takes it, the Lord never gave up on Pharaoh. I mean, He'll eventually let you have your way, um, but He's never going to give up on you. And this is, you know, I gave the seventh grader, I gave the seventh graders an assignment for next week. Uh, what's the Chester girl's name, seventh grader? Rachel. Her assignment for next week is try to try to outsin Jesus. <laughs> now, of course, I chuckled and said that probably won't be hard. But in actuality, it's very hard. You can't outsin Jesus, and you actually can't escape him. This is why the Jonah text is so great. Jonah tries to flee from the presence of the Lord. He wants to not run with Jesus. How stupid is that? You can't flee from the presence of the Lord. That's like Adam and Eve hiding because they are naked and ashamed. And the Lord says, where were you? I mean, he's toying around with them. Where were you? Well, we heard your voice, and we got scared. Do you actually think you can run from the Lord? And he's not there to destroy you. He's there to call you back to run with him again. But there does come a point where he does say, if you really want it your way, you can have it. I mean, the Lord, when someone says, I'm not coming to the Eucharist, I'm not coming to the Eucharist, I'm not coming to the church is not for me, forget all this stuff, he's going to keep trying, keep trying. In fact, I would say he keeps trying all the way to your death. But maybe your death is the time when you say, I don't want any of that. So that's why we keep getting after people. And that's why, you know, we have all these discussions down here about my kids don't want to go to church. No kid wants to go to church. You know, they just don't. But that doesn't mean the Lord's left them, and that doesn't mean the Lord's not going to get after them. So it doesn't mean we calm down and say, well, let it be. But we can rejoice in the fact the Lord's never going to give up on them.
1: Mm-hmm. But I always picture Christ as grabbing me by the wrist, and sometimes my hand is just limp. Sometimes it's like this, and then sometimes I'll hang hang on mm-hmm. you know, back. And that's kind of what I was thinking about our discussion last week, mm-hmm. is that, you know, that wrist grasp is
0: never let go. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's always, and it's just our choice whether we're going to try to wiggle out of it or whether we're going to hang on too. That's right. Yeah, Lutherans, as you know, um, before you're baptized, the whole idea of I have free will, I can choose Jesus, is not a Lutheran way of talking. That's not the way Lutherans talk. You know, I found Jesus. That's just not the way Lutherans talk. However, post baptism, your will is completely alive, and it's completely free, and it's completely unbound. So you can then begin to say, Yeah, I want to run. No pagan can say, I want to run with Jesus or I don't. You just, it's not possible. As the scriptures say, the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. And that's the key. It can't even do it. But the redeemed mind, then you can begin to say, I want to run with Jesus, or I don't. And the important thing to know is, the Lord's not going to force you into the faith. And once you're in, he's not going to force you to stay. But that doesn't mean he doesn't try his best. Force is the way of the law, but the Lord trying his best, that's in the way of the gospel. See how, I mean, I hope, I hope this comes across as, this is like basketball. I always say to the kids, basketball is so easy. It's really very simple. I mean, there's not much you have to know. You just have to do what you're told, go where you've got to go, rejoice in what you do, and it all works out. Theology is the same way. This is not, this shouldn't be over your head like, oh my, this is, very, the Lord, he's not confusing. You may not always get it, but he's actually very simple how he works. He loves you, he's merciful. His grace outweighs, you know, his, there's no wrath in him. He wants you at the Eucharist. He wants you to run with him. And if you don't, he's going to keep trying. And he's not going to force you to do anything, but he desperately wants you back. Okay? Yeah? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. No, right. Don't got to do nothing. And yet, you're given to do everything. And there's a distinction. There's a distinction. What else? Is everyone tracking? Everyone okay? What else do you get from all this? <laughs> Did you understand his whole? Dis- I mean, this is what kind of this is the overarching theme in the whole chapter is how history. Or life in this world is really skewed and, and, and burdened by the fall and, frankly, not the way it's supposed to be. We were driving to a home meeting on Wednesday night and this ambulance came by, I mean, flying by. And it's funny how you, I have a different reaction to that kind of stuff now that I've seen people for, you know, a couple years now in that kind of critical condition in the hospital. And you leave there, and every time you leave, I mean, I realize hospitals are great, my mom's a nurse, whatever, I understand all of that. But you go in there, and there's something inherently wrong about it. That's not the way things are supposed to be. And you see an ambulance flying by, and my fr- I said to Bruce and Nelson, I said, man, that just gives me the chills, because that's not the way things are supposed to be. And that's what he talks about in this chapter. I mean, that's the overarching theme. He doesn't use that example, of course, but he says, this world is not the way it's all supposed to be. And with that, then, there will be a, a time when the world is what it's supposed to be. In fact, when it's better than what it's supposed to be. I can remember in college when I finally realized that when he says, I make a new heaven and a new earth, that actually meant we have a physical body and we'll walk in Eden again. Why well, I never thought about that, I have no idea. Why well, I, I have an idea, um, but it may not be very charitable to the pastors I had. But anyways... I can remember thinking it was like it it opened up the riches of Christ's gifts because all of a sudden you realize, I will have a body back, and it will be Eden plus. It's going to be better than Eden. It's going to be better than Eden. The closest thing you get now is the Eucharist because that's Eden. But this will be Eden plus. I mean, you're going to have, no one will be sick. There will be no ambulances. There are no stoplights. There are no police cars. There's nothing like that. Animals you hate, you're going to love. People that don't like you are going to love you. And you'll be able to walk around and talk with people and hang out and have fun. It's not this dreary view that we're all a bunch of spirits up in heaven who sit for hours a day and just sing hymns. I mean, that's not it. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but that's not it. You know, they're not... It's going to be great. It's going to be... I mean, imagine... There was nothing better for me than the 10 p.m. Eucharist on Christmas Eve. My, my father-in-law just lost his mother the night before. There's no better place to be than the Eucharist. The lights were dim. It was, it was as the Catholics say, it was a high mass. There was, it, it, was, it was awesome. The candles on the back wall were awesome. I know. It was phenomenal. It was otherworldly. And if you can Im- I can imagine I can just remember how great that was to be up there and to say to him, the body of Christ, and know at that moment, you know, he was one with his mother. That's what heaven's like, just all the time. It's better. It's just so unfortunate that so we've spend our whole lives in I know. Not yet. Yes, right. What well, makes you wake up in the morning and sometimes think, you know, it wouldn't be so bad if it all ended today, you know? And that's not a bad way of thinking. When it gets bad is when people say, I just want to die, and all I want to do is die, and I just can't, I mean, you hear this from people, I just want to die. You're like, well, you know, the Lord, the Lord probably still has some good use for you. But there are some days when you wake up and say, boy, the world to come would not be so bad. That, that, whatever that was by Johnny Yeah. 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 About like you were saying, like Earth's mother. Yeah. She's in the night, you know. More weren't in the night yet. Right. somehow will Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. All of its enemies can see it. <laughs> <laughs> but ever, I mean, you see them in, this, in the spring and the summer. Have you ever seen the male cardinal in the winter and everything's
0: white? And yeah, you right. You see this gorgeous blue. Like for a pleasure. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. So it's really, I mean. That's exactly right. Oh. No, that's true. <laughs> that and that's not the point. The point no, is to say yeah. I, 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 I think, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. As, I mean, it's one all right. Of the that you meant, you me, yeah. So if the started, I think that I bet you you have That's right. Well, you have a different understanding of suffering then. Because what the scriptures say, I think, I think most people, and believe me, you're not alone. I mean, I, I probably have had, I made that comment someplace publicly. I don't know when, it. maybe it was even in a sermon. And I had four or five people come and say, you're wrong because I've never suffered. And I'm a Christian. The point is, not that I'm wrong. And not that the scriptures are wrong. And not that you're wrong. But I think your concept of suffering is different than what most than than at least what the scriptures are talking. most people think that suffering means you're in the ICU for twenty four days in a coma or just a whole bunch of I mean you um, I think if you really looked hard at your life you would find more instances where you think you may have suffered or maybe you didn't know it or here's the good thing or well, you may not but it, it is, it is, um, well, that's great. That's almost, that's almost otherworldly. I mean, talk about not wanting this. That's heavenly, man. I mean, if that's truly how it is. Here's the thing. This is the great thing. You, uh, well, uh, you might be like a heavenly being. I don't know. I mean, that's the way it is in heaven. There's no possible way. And this is, I mean, debate it if you want, but then take it out with St. Paul and take it out with St. Peter. There's no possible way to not suffer and be a Christian. So the point is not to go out and suffer and say, I've got to suffer. This is, what, this is what the Opus Dei does. Put the thing on your leg. I've got to suffer, I've got to suffer, I've got to suffer. It's like, just wait. It's going to come your way. And as I say to the confirmation kids, I always ask them, how many of you have suffered? And, of course, none of them raise their hands because they all have wheeze and 46-inch TVs, 40-inch TVs, whatever. They all have TVs. They all have a great life. And the point is, just wait, it'll come. And so if it actually hasn't happened, it may come. But, but the point is, if you talk about the suffering, that's talking in the way of the law. To talk in the way of the gospel is to say, as St. Peter says, rejoice in your sufferings insofar as you share in the sufferings of Christ. There's, and here's the other thing. Every time a person is baptized, if you actually enter into the flesh of Christ, what goes for him goes for you. So by your very nature now, you're caught up in the sufferings of Jesus that he experienced on the cross. Which is why our prayer upstairs always is, join them to the sufferings of Christ, that in him they might have true relief from all distress. You notice when people cross water in the scriptures, they're suffering on the other side. Israelites cross the Red Sea, 40 years in the wilderness. That's not fun. Now Moses may have said, this isn't as bad as I thought it was going to be, but it's suffering. Jesus crosses the Jordan. He suffers for 40 days. You cross the font, suffering is going to come sometime. So, don't go out and strap something on your leg and say, I've got to suffer. But you may have, if you don't know that you're suffering, that's actually a great gift. Because you probably have and you just don't know it. And that's okay. I'm just too stubborn. Well, that's true too. You might just be too stubborn to admit it. Actually, here's the thing. I'm, kinda, I'm, I'm the same way. I look at my life and say, boy, I don't know if I've suffered. And then you begin to really examine what you think your life has been like i mean just hindsight is always 2020 and if it hasn't come it might it will it's inevitable yes well i'm i'm it's funny that we're talking about this now because this week that uh, in my family has been so intense mm-hmm. having my dad you know for the, the bypass and stuff right
1: Mm-hmm. I was so consumed by getting him out of that situation and I'll let me do it. hmm mm-hmm. And I know I know we've all felt that way about our kids. So, you know, you see your child go through something mm-hmm. you're like, I don't mean, want him to do that. I'll, you know, let me be the one to get sick, let me be the one who has the operation, let them be okay. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> it, it, no, right. And but I think just talking about this
1: today, mm-hmm. you know that that and the and the prayer upstairs. But it does it does give you that that feeling of the and he is in the room. And you know he's crying when I'm
0: crying. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and suffering along with our family. That's right. That's right.
1: Because your that very sense of suffering for your father is Christ.
0: Whereas if it were you'd say, my <laughs> Bible <laughs> You know when I That's thought right. that too. I thought, What do other families do Right, right. <laughs> so, I mean everybody just I don't know. I and mean, I can think should I be chipper in here or should I be miserable? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs>
1: I right. I was so mixed with everything. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Or, or, or your coworkers you see them in turmoil and, you know it's just it's that kind of right. I mean, that's, that's suffering right yeah I think it's the same thing you know getting back to the very beginning about what is moralism or what does it mean to be moral if you begin with yourself it goes, it goes south if you begin with Christ then it's all okay and so suffering you always, everything in your life has to first be defined by Jesus So what is his suffering? It's not just to be nailed to a cross. It's to come in the flesh. It's to be rejected by men. It's to heal and not be loved. It's to not have community the way he thought he would. It's, I mean, name your thing. Basically, from the moment he enters his mother's womb, that's the time of suffering. All the way till his ascension. You know? Or or all the way, at least until his resurrection. Um, but he still, in a sense, suffers himself unto us in that he still comes in the flesh, he still comes in blood, he still comes to us. And this is, this is you know, sometimes, actually a good book to read down here, I think you guys would really enjoy, is Luther's got, someone has translated and typed out, of course, into a book form, all of Luther's handwritten letters of spiritual care. So Luther would write letters. You know, his, his mother was dying. He'd write a letter to his mother. Here's what you're going through. Here's what the Lord has in store. And it was, this is, this is not the Luther you think of. This is Luther who sits by his daughter's bedside in tears because she's about to die. And there's a great line where he writes to someone who's suffering. And he says, you're dying and Jesus is dying. Because whatever goes for you goes for Jesus. If you have the flu, Jesus has the flu. That's just the way it is. But you notice Luther's great thing is it's first defined by Christ. What does Jesus do? What does he come to do? What does he give? How does he suffer? And how are you caught up in that life now? It's a phenomenal, phenomenal little letter that he wrote. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I think, I think your point is a good one. When you think you're suffering, sometimes it's pride. I really, I really think so. Um, I mean, look at look at your life and find one time when you've been fearful, and it doesn't somehow relate to yourself. There's, there's. I mean, I can't figure any time. Pick even the, the most distant relationship or the most distant thing and say, I fear something, I fear for that, or I fear for that person. Somehow it's related back to you. And that, frankly, is sinful in its pride. That's why when the angel says, when the angel says to the women at the tomb, fear not, that's absolution. He absolves the women before they go to look in the tomb because they're fearful. They thought this guy was going to save their lives and now he's dead and now his body's gone. And in the Greek, me phobisco," You know, I have a phobia. Me phobisco," Fear not. And that really is absolution. To suffer for someone else then, or to suffer with Christ, that's in the way of the gospel. And that's not prideful. In fact, that's utter thats utter humility. That's utter humility. Do we have a, do you have a question for that?
1: Mm-hmm. How then is Christ suffering with them mm-hmm. through that? Because there is a certain kind of pain, but the pain is actually caused by being completely afraid here. What do you do to that? Because they feel
0: like they're being persecuted. Right. Yeah, they are persecuting themselves. And what he does is he wants to forgive it, and then if there's real pain and real suffering, to join himself to it. So he wipes the slate clean. Boom. I mean, it's, take the resurrection. He wipes the slate clean. May And then he appears to you and joins himself to you by eating dinner with you at Emmaus. So what he wants to do is forgive it and rejoin himself to you in a concrete, tangible way, which necessarily means you're probably going to suffer. <laughs> so you think, you think you're suffering and it's actually fear. He'll forgive that. And then he'll join himself to you once again. And then you can be rest assured that suffering will probably come. And the suffering you thought you had wasn't as bad as what you thought because that was actually pride and this suffering is worse, but it's all okay because it's in the way of Jesus. Mm-hmm. There is. There is. Yeah. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I think there there is a distinction between. You can't say that going through like let's just say seasonal depression. Yeah, like seasonal depression. You yeah. What's it? S A D. Is that what it is? Yeah. You can't say that that is, you can't just say, well, that's fear and that's pride and so that's sin. That's not what we, that, that's why there is a distinction. Um, but I will tell you this people who have all sorts of things like that, I mean, people who go through all sorts of things like that, depression, um, you know, pick your th- pick whatever you want, when they make confession, and absolution part of their daily life, or part of their yearly life, that doesn't mean they come to confess, I've been depressed. But they just make confession part of their life. It actually helps in all those other things. This is, it's, I'm, I'm not lying. It's very true. They come and they say, my life has been changed, even in these other areas that have nothing to do with my sin. I mean, obviously they do, because it's the fall and whatever. You're not going to be depressed in Eden. Um, but it's transformed the way they view these other things. Is that sin? No. But you've got a lot of other sins that may somehow affect what you've got going on over here, which isn't sin, but it's affected by everything else. So, yeah, make sure you know I'm not saying to be depressed is sin. That's not it. To be fearful is sin. Depression is a different thing, but sometimes your fear leads to your depression. Okay? Yeah. That's right. That's right. That's right. Beth? I just wanted to ask you if you remember the quote that, if it's in that book of the letters, what Luther said at his deathbed, because I remember reading that. Yeah. And it was so good, but I can't remember. Well, I don't remember what Luther said right at her death, but I remember the letter was striking because Luther was angry at the Lord. I know this is best. Yeah, Yeah, he said things like that. I know this is best. I know I should rejoice. I know my little one is going to be with Jesus but I'm angry. And that's that's the way Christians act. I mean this is people can't figure this out but you say you're suffering you're angry, take it out on Jesus. It's really okay. I mean put all of that on the cross and let him deal with it because he will. And that's that's Luther. It's not bad to be angry at the Lord as long as you understand that the Lord has a means around it and Frankly, he gives life and he takes life away. And as the Scriptures say, blessed be the name of the Lord. But that's why his letters are so good. Because he's a real person there. He's a, oh, I'm sure it's in there. I've read it. It's in there, yeah. Yeah. What else on the text? Anything? What? Yeah. I was just going to say that
1: there's a quote in here that kind of ties together what Carol said with some
0: other comments on page 145 as well. Yeah. Where you underline something, what I highlighted was at the bottom of the page. Okay. And it's it's the third paragraph down, and it starts about moralism. hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Moralism is dead. Morality <laughs> is wise. Moralism works on the base of human ability and arranges life in such a way that my good behavior will guarantee protection from punishment or disaster. And then the next paragraph down, it ties in what you said. Mm-hmm. Moralism works from the outside, it imposes right behavior
0: on oneself or Read the next sentence. There is no freedom in it and no joy. That's right. That, it's divine intervention, I think. <laughs> <laughs> he is really good. Peterson is very, very good. Yeah, that's, what's that? What were we going to say? Yeah? Yeah? He talks very He does. He talks very yeah, I mean this is, <laughs> how many of you are Presbyterians? Raise your hand. <laughs> um, yeah, Where, uh, you know there's something else, oh yes, page 144 here, and he's ending the section, I want to get the exact title, but page 144, he's ending the Jesus, the Kerygma Jesus death section. This is, this is so great. Where This is the paragraph continued from page 143. In the letter, he's talking about Hebrews. And you remember Hebrews, there's so much to it. One, we don't quite know who the author of it is. Probably not St. Paul. Everyone, you know, your King James probably says the letter of St. Paul to the Hebrews. There's a good chance it's not St. Paul. But the one thing we do know is it really is a sermon, as, as most of the epistles, or all, all of the epistles are, but Hebrews is, is explicit almost. And what happens is they would read this, share the peace, and go to the Eucharist. That's just how it was. So, you know, what we do is what the church has been doing since the time of, you know, the apostles. But it says here, in the letter, Hebrews, all Christ's suffering and death is distilled into salvation prayer for all who suffer and die, which is to say for all of us. And then he cites this prayer, which is brilliant. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. He's obedient. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, having been designated by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. There is is ten weeks of Bible study in that verse right there. But what it says is, Jesus knew what it meant to be a son because he was obedient in suffering. Which is just a fancy way of saying, you know what it means to be a Christian because you're obedient in the Christian life. And he said, you know, it goes on to say, He became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And the reason this is placed so well is because the very next verse, or the very next uh, page, which you just read, shows that you can take that verse one of two ways. Either that obedience is burden or it's joy. For Jesus, even in suffering, it was great joy. Um, But we don't tend to think that way. I think if you took a show of hands, which I won't do, you would think obedience is probably not primarily a gospel word. But for Jesus, it is. And that, to be quite honest, could transform the church for the better for a 100 years to come. Not just St. John, the church at large. If people began to see obedience as a gospel word, a word to rejoice in. The problem is, for you know 200 years since the time of pietism, really, We've seen obedience as a law word which is burdensome, condemning, wrathful, whatever. The goal is to be part of the flesh of Christ and do what he does. Yes? On the next page, yes, keep us going. Okay. It kind of talks about that because he talks about the hmm. How you say that? Oh, because, oh, you say that. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Which is right. Mm-hmm.
1: That, that's really hard for me to, like, wrap my brain around
0: Right. Joyful. And, yeah, right. It's hard for me to get that. But when I read that, I'm, you know, yeah. it kind of gets it down to my level. Right. Right. <gasps> Part of our uh, thinking of obedience
1: as being uh, uh, the underside of mm-hmm. life. Right. Really really feeds into not needing God. We can get or buy or earn or study mm-hmm. to promote ourselves mm-hmm. and the our family almost limitlessly. Mm-hmm. Um
0: and and we think of obedience as not that's right giving into any of that, which maybe part of it is mm-hmm. We, uh, on Wednesday night, the same home meeting where we saw the ambulance, uh, we pulled up and and Jim Butcher, who was a man among men, was at the home meeting. Were you at that one? You were at the later one. You were at the later one. Um, He ends the night. I mean, this is, what I love about Jim Butcher is, at least during the meeting, he was very soft-spoken, but he ends on this very eloquent, it was just, it was perfect. He said, here's what he said. I spend every hour of every day telling people what to do. I don't want to come to church and do the same thing. He said, I want to come to church and have someone tell me what's best. And he used the, he used the analogy of a family. This is, this is so great. He said, like at, you know, at our house, kids come home for dinner. It doesn't matter what's on the table. No one questions it. No one asks. They just know this is what's been provided. This is what's best, and this is what we're going to do. And one woman says, no kidding, One, one woman says in the back, one woman says in the back, well, don't they talk back? And Jim looked at her like he'd never heard that, and Nancy said, no. That's just how it is. The father says we're going to do this, or the parents say we're going to do this, and the family rejoices in that, and no one questions it. And Jim then says, I spend every day of every hour telling people, here's what you're going to do. I want to come to church and have someone tell me, this is what you should do because this is what's best. That's a man who completely understands obedience. And as the scriptures say, I know what it is to be in authority and be under authority. That's what that means. And don't think that, you know, that pastors who always talk about obedience don't understand that as well. I know what it is to be in authority and be under authority. Bruzek knows what it is to be in authority and be under We have someone who's above us, who has authority over us, and we rejoice in being obedient towards him. Um, so that is... And even when people don't get along, it's all okay. I mean, the great, I thought the best story, besides the procrustes, was the, was the story he led with about the, kids that, the kid that didn't like him. But the best part was when the mother of that kid saw Peterson walking behind her house, invited him in, and as it said in the text, she had compassion on me. Now that is... Here's what he's done. It's very sly, and I don't know if anyone caught it. That is a picture of the church. The church is a mother. All the kids may hate each other. You may not like the kid next to you. You may even want to beat the you-know-what out of the kid next to you. But Holy Mother, the church, always has compassion. And by her compassion, she squares up all the kids. When he came in and ate dinner with the family, he was no different than the kid who hated him. Everyone's equal because the mother has compassion. And that's what the church is all about. You may not like other people, but frankly, I don't care, and that doesn't matter. Because Holy Mother, the church, through the sacraments, says you're all equal, you're all damn sinners, you're all redeemed, you're all perfect, you all participate in the divine life, and isn't this wonderful? So let's go forward and have some fun. So the goal is then to walk out of the house from dinner and not want to beat the kid up. That's the goal. And you can imagine how it must have been for, that, for the actual son of the mother after they all ate dinner together for him to walk out of the house then with this kid. It's a whole new relationship. When the mother has compassion, the kid acts differently. Anything else? Go ahead. I was thinking Just now when you were talking about the future, you been telling
1: the kids, the coach tells
0: you what to do. Right. Right. <laughs> you you just do whatever the coach tells you to do because in theory the coach ought to know what's right. best for you. That's right. You yeah. And if you think of God that way, like don't argue with what the coach says. Look him straight in yeah, way, right. you do your best to do
1: what the coach says, which is yeah. gonna fail. Yeah. But it takes the press off you. Right. If things go wrong, mm-hmm. it's God's fault. But
0: the coach is in charge. Well that's it. Yeah. If it doesn't go the way if you think that's right. And the press is off you. Yep. You know, but if you start telling the coach what you think is bad, things always <laughs> go wrong. might go right for a second. That's right. Yeah. And, and but I don't know. It the really, order is wrong. Right. But, so but we can't is even really get is like Yeah, well we no, we can't even get to that point. I mean, it's it, I mean, even take the church here. If everyone came to church every Sunday, came to Bible study every Sunday, everyone gave 10%, and then for some reason it didn't all work out. Well, then we'll take it out on the Lord, but we don't even give them the chance to fail. I mean, we don't even we don't even give them the chance to fail. It's like basketball. I draw up a play; they don't even give me the chance to fail because they don't run it. Reg- they don't run it, you know. But you're right. We you can't even let we can't even let our coaches tell us. Yes, that. right. Them exactly. Them. Exactly. Feeling, but it would, it would take the press off of so many people if you listen to your boss at work, even though you think yes. got a better idea. Like just listen to him. Yeah. And, then, and if it goes wrong, he'll take the blame. Yeah. Yes. I think that's the exact word.
1: Is, because a few years ago, Zicker, when the was Vicar Peyton, was totally changed the way I hear the word obedience because he said, think of it as listening. Yes.
0: And I was like, oh, because of course my first inclination is, I don't want to obey. <laughs> but I do want to listen. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> to read the word. Yes. because that's we all seems like we all desperately want someone to tell us what is the right thing. Right. And what is the way? And as soon as someone does say the right thing and as soon as the Lord says it we say no well no. Well that's why we're so drawn to the 40 yeah, right. 40 day of purpose. Cuz you figure what's yeah, best. Exactly.
1: Well, Cuz I, I feel like someone's telling us what to do
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 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 and think of—I mean, just think about even as growing. Now, most of you, this may not apply, but as you grew up, and even as you got married, how much you still intrinsically relied upon your parents? I mean, just in how you act. I can remember we were married for probably two years, and we were about to buy a car, and I said I should call my dad. Now. Of course, Abby takes that as like a, you know, but that was not the point. The point is, I trust what he thinks. And if he were to say to me, that's not the best idea, I would obey. I mean, you laugh. You think it's funny. I don't think it's no, funny. No, no, <laughs> I think it's actually. <laughs> and he told you, you know, that's right. Yeah, right. I mean, you just trust those who are in authority over you. Um, And that's the way the church is. The church is no different than your parents. In fact, this family is more intimate than your family. It is. All right. Anything else before we're dismissed? I have no idea. Um, (laughs) Why don't you start at 147 where it says the grounding text in Exodus. And why don't you read... Uh, let's see. I don't want to hold on. There's there's quite a bit. Well, forty pages is probably too. We're not. You're never going to get through forty pages. I mean, you're never going to discuss forty pages down here. I promise you. So why don't you read one forty seven through one sixty? So you'll end with. Um, Exor- yeah, exorcism, you, you'll end with God. You'll do all the God part, the exodus, the God part, and don't start the exorcism part. So 147 to 160. The exorcist, you know, it took place at Concordia Seminary. Really? You never heard that? Yeah, it took place in the little chapel, the Martin Luther Chapel at Concordia Seminary. Um, the Lutherans couldn't get the demon out, so they called the Jesuit priests, and they came over and they have a, they have a resident exorcist who was able to exorcise the demon. And he was like 26, and he woke up the next morning with completely gray hair. Sometimes I think it's going to happen to me. The exorciser. Yes. The, were, directed- the, ex- the movie The Exorcist is based upon this Lutheran kid who was possessed by a demon. Yeah, and they took him to the seminary, and the, the people there didn't know how to get the demon out. And so they called the Jesuit priest from St. Louis... And they have a resident exorcist, and he came over and was able to exorcise the demon. So, that's real stuff. Don't think that stuff is not real. That is more real. It's palpable how real it is. Scary. Yeah. Well, you know, we do, we do have one guy who's out in Maine. We should. We should have one on staff. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, right. And, but the south side of town, there's a the lot, there's some occult shops. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you, this is before I knew this. you get a cold, mm-hmm. like I was walking and I go, I started feeling creeped out, Yeah, honestly. And the pastor's wife said the exact same thing happened to her. The first time she drove, to her, mm-hmm. she had no idea. And she said, I just got this chill. Yeah. And we then discover that this whole kind of south side of town is
0: dabbling in the occult. And it is a real... It's palpable. Thing. It's Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was in New Orleans when I was in the French Quarter when I went into a voodoo shop. I thought I could see what this is all about. They were very, very serious, and they knew that I didn't belong. <laughs> and you felt, oh, absolutely. Harry lasted yeah. about two minutes. Yeah. Yes. Ha <laughs> ha. and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Hey, you guys are great. Thanks for coming.